Well, good morning. And it is customary on this day, obviously, to greet one another with, uh, He is risen. 400 years after the uh, resurrection of Christ, the early church celebrating Easter, one of the greatest preachers of the early church is a man named John Chrysostom. Chrysostom is, uh, means golden mouth, and he was considered a great orator. Uh, since I have discovered this little homily, I have used it in just about every Easter or Resurrection Sunday service. And so I want to use that as our opening prayer uh, as we get into our text this morning. Uh, and this is what Chrysostom said. It's, it's short, but it's powerful. Isaiah foretold this when he said, You, O hell, have been troubled by encountering him below. Hell was in an uproar because it was done away with. It was in an uproar because it is mocked. It was in an uproar for it is destroyed. It is in an uproar for it is annihilated. It is in an uproar for it is now made captive. Hell took a body and discovered God. It took earth and encountered heaven. It took what it saw and was overcome by what it did not see. O death, where is thy sting? O hell, where is thy victory? Christ is risen, and you, O death, are annihilated. Christ is risen, and the evil ones are cast down. Christ is risen, and the angels rejoice. Christ is risen, and life is liberated. Christ is risen, and the tomb is emptied of its dead. For Christ, having been risen from the dead, is become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. To him... Be the glory and the power forever and ever. Amen. I can't match that kind of oratory, but I will try my best. Years ago, I read of a story about a man who ran into his pastor at the, his local coffee shop, and he greeted his pastor as he always did whenever he saw him and said, What's the news this morning, pastor? And the man asked while he was waiting for his uh, Americano and without hesitation, the pastor, being used to this question, always gave the same answer. The news, he says, is Jesus Christ died for our sins and rose for our justification. And today, Christians around the world celebrate the fact that Christ is indeed risen, that he died for our sins and rose from the dead for our justification, that we, by faith in him, faith in his resurrection, faith in what he accomplished on the cross, are justified. We are declared not guilty. Our sins have been cleansed. So that when we say he is risen, we are repeating old news, new news, and good news. Jesus is not dead. He is risen. And those three words are the content of the gospel. They are the content of Christianity. Justification by faith in Christ is essential to Christianity, but without the resurrection, validating Christ's sacrifice on the cross, because if Jesus had died and stayed dead, we would not have any indication from God the Father that he had welcomed and received and accepted Christ's death as the atoning sacrifice for sin. So when we say he is risen, it guarantees that our sins are forgiven. And that God indeed has declared us not guilty on the basis of Christ's death in our place. He is risen guarantees 
that all those who put their trust in Christ indeed will inherit and have now as a present experience everlasting life. He is risen guarantees our participation in the resurrection from the dead because it is not only in this life that we have hope in Christ, but that hope will carry us forward into the next. He is risen is old news. It's new news. And it's good news. It is the hinge on which history turns. That's not an overstatement. And it's not to downplay the importance and the joy that we celebrate every year at Christmas. Because without the birth of Christ, without the incarnation, there is no resurrection. However, if all we knew about Jesus was that he was born in extraordinary ways, that he lived a sinless life, that he preached a message so powerful, so potent, so challenging that he died for it, but did not rise from the dead, then our faith is pointless and our hope in him and everything he said is of no value whatsoever. But the resurrection changes everything because it is a uniquely unrepeatable event. Babies are born all the time. We rejoice when they enter our world However, when someone dies, they tend to stay dead. The obituaries are filled with the names of people and loved ones who have died. Not one of them, not one of them has come back from the dead. None. Zip. Zilch. Zero. Nada. All the people even that Jesus brought back from the dead, from the, the son of the widow in Nain in Luke 7, to his best friend Lazarus in John 11. They were brought back from the dead only to die again. Even Tabitha, also known as Dorcas in Acts 9, whom Jesus brings back, whom Peter brings back to life, eventually died. And good old Eutychus, who fell asleep and then fell to the ground because Paul kept preaching on and on and on into the night. Eventually, even after Paul revived Eutychus, he died. But when Jesus died, he rose from the dead never to die again. That is why the resurrection is a uniquely unrepeatable event. And that is why the resurrection changes everything. And that is why the resurrection is the cornerstone of our faith. Because without the resurrection, there can be no justification by grace through faith in Christ as a Savior for our sins. Because we are still then dead in our trespasses and sins but since Christ has been raised from the dead, we are now by faith alive in him and we experience a full and free justification, a full and free forgiveness, a full and free acceptance into the very throne room of God the Father through what Christ has done. We read the Apostles' Creed and some of us stumble over that line that says he descended to the dead and we struggle with what that means. When did he descend to the dead? Those three hours of darkness on the cross is where he descended to the dead. Because he told the thief alongside him on the cross that today you will be with me in paradise. So once Christ cried out, it is finished, and gave up his spirit, he and that thief were in paradise until such time as the Father and the Spirit and the Son in agreement said, it's the third day. Time to wake up, time to get to work, time to go forth. The 
stone that covered the tomb was not rolled away so that Jesus could get out. The stone that covered that tomb was rolled away so that Peter and John and Mary could go in and see. He is not here. He is risen just as he said. And his body was not stolen. His body was not robbed because John tells us that the linen cloth that lay around Jesus' head was folded up in a place by itself. If thieves were going to rob the body, they would take the whole body. They wouldn't go through the time of unwrapping it. And then neatly after unwrapping the body, fold it up. Fold up the cloth in a place by itself. No, the resurrection changes everything because it is a uniquely unrepeatable event. The resurrection changed the apostle Thomas. We all know about Thomas, doubting Thomas, we call him. But the moment that he sees the resurrected Jesus, the moment that he places his hands in the nail holes in Jesus' fingers and he beholds the pierced side of Christ, what does Thomas do? He goes from doubting Thomas to devoted disciple. He falls to his knees and he says, my Lord and my God. The resurrection changed Peter. Knowing Christ has risen from the dead, transformed this man, this coward, who had three times denied knowing Jesus on the night Jesus was betrayed. Suddenly, Peter, on the day of Pentecost, is transformed to this courageous preacher who proclaims boldly to his own people, the Jews, this Jesus whom you crucified. God has made both Lord and Christ, and so powerful was Peter's message under the inspiration of the Spirit that 3,000 people were saved. The resurrection changed Thomas. It changed Peter. And per our text this morning, the resurrection changed the Apostle Paul. His transformation happened as a result of seeing the risen Christ while he was traveling to Damascus with letters of warrant to persecute the Christians living there. The risen Christ appears to Paul not in a vision, but physically appears to him. And that encounter converted him from the breathing fiery threats against the church of Christ. And by his own admission, the worst of sinners was transformed into a fearless proclaimer of the gospel, a missionary who planted churches all throughout the Near East with eyes set on Spain had he not been martyred in Rome. The resurrection changes people. It changes you and I. Because when we encounter the risen Christ, we come face to face with one who is not dead but who is alive. We come face to face with one who has died for our sins and risen for our justification so that we would be declared not guilty of our sins before a holy and majestic and merciful God. Believing in the resurrection is not an idle hope, but it is hope for life beyond this life. You read the news. You see the news. If you are a follower of Christ, and even if you're not, you kind of wonder, what is going on? Where is all this leading? Where is hope to be found? How is hope to be proclaimed? Without the resurrection of Jesus Christ, we have no hope to offer anyone, because then there is no hope for life beyond this life. There is no hope for life in this life without the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Because believing that Christ is risen, it inspires devotion. It 
instills courage, and it motivates those of us who believe in Christ to live on mission, to live courageously, to speak boldly about this marvelous Savior who lives and is experienced through reading his word, through worship that we participated in this morning, through participation in the sacraments of the Lord's Supper, and as we'll do after this message, in the sacrament of baptism, sensing his presence, the sign and seal of his presence through participation in the sacraments. To believe Jesus died for our sins and rose for our justification is to believe the gospel. That's why Paul, in writing to the Corinthians, who themselves were struggling with the fact that, well, what happens to those who die in faith? What happens to those who are dead before Jesus returns? Paul reminds them that the resurrection is the cornerstone of the gospel. He tells them in verse 3, I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. So the death and resurrection of Jesus, even his burial, is no mere coincidence, no accident of history. It just didn't happen. It happened in accordance with the Scriptures, in fulfillment of centuries of prophecy that date back even to the Garden of Eden. And Paul here in verse 3 of 1 Corinthians 15, he summarizes the gospel in three succinct statements. Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. Christ was buried also according to the Scriptures. And Christ was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. Christ died for our sins, says Paul. He, he calls Jesus by his official title, Christ, the Anointed One, the Messiah. He is sent to save us from our sins and to deliver us from the fear of death. As the Christ, Jesus is the sinless Savior. He didn't die for his sins. He died for our sins according to the Scriptures. He is, as John the Baptist proclaimed, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, the suffering servant that we heard about on Good Friday, proclaimed by Isaiah in chapter 53, verse 5, that Jesus was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And the punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. That the only way there could be peace between God and us was through one who was a sinless peacemaker, who by his death and bearing our punishment would establish and reestablish a relationship with God that had been broken by Adam and Eve and continues to be broken this day until men and women and children come to realize who Jesus is and that he died for our sins. He didn't black out from pain at the crucifixion. He didn't lapse into a catatonic, catatonic coma. He died. He was dead. No pulse, no heartbeat, no brain activity, no breath. He was dead. Really, really, really dead. But then, being dead, he was then buried. After Jesus died, Joseph of Arimathea, a follower of Christ at a distance, 
boldly goes to Pilate and he requests to take down Jesus' body from the cross that he might wrap the body in linen and anoint it with spices and then place it in his own new tomb, a tomb that Luke tells us in which no body had ever been placed. This is important because it fulfills three specific things. First, it fulfills the prophecy of Isaiah 53, 9, where speaking of Jesus, the prophet says, and they made his grave with the wicked. He died between two thieves and with a rich man in his death. Joseph was a wealthy man. He gave Jesus his own new tomb. Secondly, Jesus is placed in a tomb where no other body was buried, where neither death nor decay could defile his body. And then thirdly, a new tomb where no one had been buried would then prevent the authorities from producing a corpse to disprove all of the claims that Jesus had risen from the dead. If there had been another corpse in that tomb of Joseph of Arimathea, and then the disciples go around claiming that Jesus is risen from the dead, then the authorities could simply go to that tomb, take out one of those bodies and say, no, here he is. He's wrapped here, but that did not happen because there was no other body in that tomb beside Jesus Christ. They did not produce a body because they could not produce a body, and they never have produced a body. And then lastly, to convince the readers that Jesus was truly dead, Joseph wraps Jesus' body in linen with spices, as was the custom of the Jews. You don't do that for someone in a coma. You don't bury a living person. You bury a corpse. You bury a cadaver. You bury a dead body. Jesus was buried because he died for our sins. But on the third day, Paul says, Christ, Christ was raised from the dead. And the, the, the tense of the verb that Paul uses here is noteworthy because it does double duty. It not only tells us that Jesus was raised from the dead, it tells us that Jesus continues to be raised. He continues to live. He won't ever die again. When he appears to his disciples, Luke tells us the disciples were terrified and they trembled at the sight of Jesus. And Jesus reassured them. He says, look at me. A ghost does not have flesh and bone as you see that I have. And then still Sensing they weren't convinced in what is just one of those humorous moments of the gospel in the midst of the terror of the disciples, Jesus looking at their faces, fear etched on them. He says, what do you have to eat? And they give him some royal fish and he ate it in their presence. And so Jesus rose bodily from the grave. It wasn't, it wasn't a vision. It wasn't a spirit. It was flesh and bone that they saw. They saw him eat, and remarkably, remarkably, he lived, he stayed, and he remained for 40 days. The resurrection of Christ not only validated everything Jesus said about himself, it validated everything that he did. Paul would write later in Romans chapter 1, verse 4, that Jesus was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. 
In other words, let there be no doubt as to Jesus' claims and what others claim about him to be the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, God in human flesh. His resurrection is God's declaration. This is my Son in whom I am well pleased. And we ought to listen to him because he's the only one who's come back from the dead. The only one who can give us hope for life beyond this life. And then in 1 Peter 1.3, the man who denies Jesus and then becomes the great preacher says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope. How? Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Christ was raised on the third day. And that's why the, the resurrection is the cornerstone of the gospel, because if if Christ had not been raised, and our, our faith is indeed pointless, and we're still in our sins. Moreover, everyone then who dies, trusting in Jesus, is dead and will never rise again. But later on in this 15th chapter of Corinthians, Paul gives the assurance that in fact Christ has risen from the dead. In verse 19 he writes, If in Christ... If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep, who have died, also have perished. But in fact, he writes, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by man came death, by a man has come the resurrection of the dead. So if you have put your hope in Christ and you wrestle with the assurance of forgiveness, whether or not God truly has washed away your sins, the fact that Christ is risen from the dead is God's guarantee that you are truly forgiven. And if you have not come to the realization that your sin has separated you from God, has separated you from this marvelous Savior, whom you may regard as an interesting person, a curious historical anomaly, who says amazing things and have regarded him as a great moral teacher, and that suddenly realize under the conviction of the Holy Spirit that, wait a minute, he is much more than a great moral teacher. He is much more than a, a social figure. But he is, in fact, the Son of God incarnate, and my sin is real, and my sin cannot be denied, and my sin is what separates me from a loving God, under whose wrath I live unless I put my faith in one who has experienced his wrath. Now you have an assurance that your sins as well are forgiven. This is our confidence before God. That Jesus Christ, by his resurrection from the dead, has been declared to be the Son of God, and that by faith in him, we can be caused to be born again, to experience a first resurrection, a spiritual resurrection that looks forward to the ultimate resurrection when Christ returns. We don't have to take Paul's word on it. We don't have to take just what he says. But there are other witnesses because, as he goes on to write, the resurrection is confirmed by eyewitnesses who saw the risen Christ. He says in verse 5, after that he, meaning Jesus, appeared to Cephas, that's Peter's name, then to the twelve, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at the same time, most of whom are still alive, says Paul, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. 
Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me. We read from John's gospel. If you go and read the other gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, you will find that all of the gospels tell us that women were the first eyewitnesses to the resurrection. Why is that important? It's important because in first century Judaism, women could not act as legal witnesses in a court proceeding. Like shepherds, they were regarded as second-class citizens. Their testimony was considered unreliable. In a very patriarchal society, they were women after all, and you know how they are prone to hysteria. So if you, as a gospel writer, if you as a part of the early church are looking to establish the validity, the truthfulness, and the, and the absolute certainty of Christ's resurrection, you would not write into your story that the first people who see Jesus risen from the dead are women. You would pick men who are strong, who are virile, right? who have hair on their chest. Right? Right? Men who eat steak raw. But they didn't do that. As a matter of fact, you read Luke's gospel, when the women go back to tell the disciples that they have seen Jesus, Peter and the rest treat what they're saying to them as nonsense, babbling. That's one eyewitness. But Paul, when he writes it, he doesn't attempt to prove or even to defend the resurrection. It's a fact. To him, from his perspective, Trying to prove the resurrection, it's like trying to prove the sun is in the sky. Just look up. There it is. It's like Lewis, C.S. Lewis said, right? I, I, I believe in the gospel the way I believe in the sun, not because I see it, but because by it I see everything else. Besides, there are all these other witnesses that have seen the risen Christ. Is Peter, you've got James, you've got Thomas, you've got the other apostles. Then you have 500 people, Paul says, many of whom are still alive, though some have died. Meaning that if you could track these 500 people down, they would tell you, oh yeah, we saw him. We heard him. We touched him. We ate with him. And this amazing fact is recorded by Luke in Acts chapter 1, verse 3. Luke, who wrote the gospel, also writes Acts the prologue to Luke's uh, Acts, he says this, To the same apostles also, speaking of Jesus, after his suffering, Jesus presented himself alive with many convincing proofs. Here's the killer. No pun intended. He was seen by them over a 40-day period and spoke about matters concerning the kingdom of God. Forty days. That's not an accident either. 40 is a highly significant number in the Bible. Highly significant. 40 days is more than enough time to validate the fact that Christ was alive. And after appearing to more than 500 other witnesses, Paul says, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me. That phrase, untimely born, literally means as to one born at the wrong time. And the verb that he uses there is particularly graphic and earthy, ektroma. 
It refers to a premature birth, a miscarriage, an aborted child. That's how Paul regards his coming to faith and to his own call as an apostle. He did not receive his apostleship in the usual way. He wasn't among the original 12. His call, his conversion came in an unexpected, peculiar, and abnormal way. Jesus appeared to him personally. I remember years ago listening to uh, a fellow who had grown up in a Muslim country in Africa. And he was the, the great, great grandson of the imam that founded or started uh, Islam in the country of his birth. Like, I won't tell it to you because he's in danger. He's gone back as a witness, as a Christian missionary. But he was in a debate with one of his imams, and he was given the assignment of defending the resurrection of Christ from a Christian perspective because Muslims don't believe that Jesus was crucified. And so he began to study the scriptures. He began to make his defense. And he says, then I was, I was praying one night and reading through, Jesus appeared to me. Now he says, I know it wasn't a vision because in my room it was very warm and I had a fan on. And when Jesus appeared to me, the fan moved the robe that he was wearing. He says, I don't think that happens with a ghost or a vision, that Jesus was physically in his room. And his story has been verified by other Muslims as well who have had a, a visible encounter with the risen Christ. That's what Paul experienced. That's an abnormal way to come to Jesus. That's a peculiar way. But when God desires to enter into your life, into my life, he chooses the means by which he does it, not us. That begs the question, how did Christ call you? Has he called you? And when he calls you, will you say yes? Will you fall to your knees as Thomas did and say, my Lord and my God? Will you as Paul falling to the ground, says, who are you, Lord? And at that moment, hear him say, I am who I am. I am the Son of God. I am the Lord, the Savior for sins. The resurrection changes everything because it is a uniquely unrepeatable event, and it is because Christ is risen from the dead that we can be forgiven. The resurrection changes everything, everything. And it changes everyone because no one, no one is beyond the grasp. No one is beyond the depth. No one is beyond the reach of God's grace, mercy, and love. That's why when Jesus, before he has ascended, issues the great command, the great commission at the end of Matthew's gospel. This is not old news, new news, and good news that is to be kept within a particular enclave, but it is news to be shared. It is news to be announced. Go into all the world says Jesus. Make disciples, teaching them everything I have commanded you, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And behold, he says, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. And that happens, that presence, that promise is fulfilled in the day of Pentecost. Centuries have gone by, and people have and will continue to attempt to quelch, to squash, and to silence the witness of the gospel 
and they will fail every time. They will fail every time because you can't kill a Savior who lives forever. And you can't quiet a word that is indestructible because you cannot quench an idea that is true and solid and firm. My prayer is that for all of us as we go forward that we would see with the eyes of faith a risen Christ and with confidence and boldness live for him unashamedly, unapologetically, true, compassionately, yes, but in the best sense, defiantly. Defiantly, with the power of the Holy Spirit, that we would proclaim he is not dead, but he is risen. I have not seen this drama, but I, have, I will share it to you by way of illustration. A man by the name of John Macefield wrote a drama called The Trial of Jesus. And there's a striking passage in that trial in which the, the Roman centurion who is in command of the soldiers who crucified Jesus, he makes his report back to Pilate about the day's work, crucifixion. And after giving Pilate his report, Pilate's wife motions to the centurion to ask him a question. Do you think he's dead? No, milady, answers the centurion. I do not think he is dead. Then trembling, she asked, then, uh, where is he? Let loose in a world, milady, where neither Roman nor Jew can stop his truth. What's the news this morning? The news is that hell took a body and discovered God. Hell took earth and encountered heaven. The news is that Jesus Christ died for our sins and rose for our justification. He and his people are let loose in the world where no one can stop the truth. That's old news. That's new news. And that's good news. Always. You think about that. Let's pray. Our Lord and Savior, we give you thanks for this, this fact, this historical event that cannot be disproven, cannot be denied, except by those unwilling to accept what is true. And so by grace, you have opened the eyes of all of us who have trusted in Christ, because we were among those doubters, we were among those scoffers, we were among those who would cry out, crucify him. But now by your grace, we are among those who say, my Lord and my God. Fathers, we come now to remember the power of the gospel in the celebration of the sacrament of baptism. May your spirit continue to work in our hearts, work in the hearts of those of us who have by your grace made that profession and continue to work in the hearts of those who have not yet bend the knee and confess with the mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord. May your word go forth this morning with power, with truth, and with strength, with convicting power, that we might live it, that we might proclaim it, that we might continually be transformed by it. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.